Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You are about to listen to the Getting Technology Right Ethics and Technology Podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish. Get ready for a conversation about global values and technology, diversity and inclusion, discrimination, transparency in data, privacy, and cybersecurity. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome to Getting Tech Right, the podcast about ethics and technology. My name is Kevin McNish and with me today is Professor Philip Bray, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Twente, to talk about ethics and socially disruptive technologies. And I hope continue the discussion that we've been having around operationalizing or embedding ethics in organizations. So Philip, can you tell uh, the listeners something about your research and your interests? Yes, Kevin, thank you for having me. So, yeah, I've been working in the field of ethics of technology now for um, how long? Uh, almost 30 years. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great field because exciting stuff is always happening, right? The technology is changing so rapidly. There are always new challenges, new issues to consider. And I like that. Although in my research, I also look try to look at the constants, at, at, at the con- continuing issues that are also there. So, uh, yeah, about my research, um, my own research is um, mostly ethics of technology. I also do philosophy of technology in a broader sense, um, looking at technology um, in, a, in as a form of knowledge, as a form of kind of um, something that affects human nature. But most of my work is in ethics. I study uh, ethical implications and challenges of emerging technology. So uh, most emerging technologies I have an interest in, but I mostly work in digital uh, technology and sometimes in biomedical and environmental as well. And within the digital digital technology fields, my recent work has been Unsurprisingly, as most people has, has, have it uh, on AI and robotics. Uh, also currently writing a book on the metaverse, because in the past I've done a lot of work on um, virtual and augmented reality. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the metaverse is a potentially something that will really happen. Not today, not tomorrow, but uh, in, in the near future. So that really warrants uh, a lot of attention. It might be the new version, the new form of the internet, Web 3.0. And then, yeah, just looking at uh, different digital technologies and how they affect us. Also more broadly, um, at how ethics should be used to assess technology and what, what are the ethical challenges of new technologies and how they can be assessed, how they can be mitigated, uh, how technology can be developed better, guided better, used better, and how as a society, we uh, can face this challenge of uh, these continuously emerging technologies. Mm. 
Excellent. Thank you. That's that's quite quite a quite a sweep. <laughs> but as you say, over nearly 30 years, that's quite quite impressive. And just thinking as you were talking there, I mean, 30 years goes back to um, well, almost pre-mobile phones, certainly uh, uh pre well almost pre-World Wide Web, definitely pre-social media. So what would you say have been some of the most significant changes you've seen over that? period of time and particularly with ethics in mind yeah well obviously the whole digital revolution happened roughly in that period well it happened it started earlier but the real breakthrough in terms of really transforming social institutions um, affecting everyday life i would say that it, it happened mostly during that period um when i was um, an undergraduate uh, computers started being used for the first time uh, uh, in colleges and universities. When I was a graduate student, uh, basically the um, the internet started happening. The World Wide Web, at least, was born. So uh, the digital revolution, um, yeah. And I was there at an early point, and I thought, well, this is really going to transform society. I'd, I'd better um, uh, put my focus on this. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've had an interest in technology more broadly, but certainly uh, digital technologies because of their enormous transformative potential. Mm. But if you ask me how ethics has changed, ethics of technology specifically, well, 30 years ago, ethics of technology barely was a field. That is, uh, very few ethicists were thinking about technology. And that has certainly changed in the past 30 years. I mean, it, it has grown more enormously as a field, especially digital ethics, but also other fields of um, ethics of technology. Um, so that has been a big change. If you look at the uh, early days, 1980s, 1990s, um, you still had what we call classical philosophy and ethics of technology, which is... It doesn't look really look much at specific technologies. It looks at technology in general and how it's changing society, how it's changing human nature and how we should deal with it. And it usually is quite negative or pessimistic. So you get uh, authors like um, Martin Heidegger, Jacques Alou, um, Herbert Marcuse, uh, having these sweeping pessimistic critiques of technology. And I think what happened um, in the 1990s is that a, an, an empirical turn happened. So people started thinking more about specific technologies, um, started uh, taking um, the empirical sciences more seriously. So looking at the results of uh, science and engineering, the results of um, the social sciences and incorporating those in philosophy and ethics and having more of a uh, neutral or ambivalent uh, attitude towards technology. Not saying it's all bad or it's all wonderful, but uh, trying to see how it actually uh, affects society and humans positively and negatively. And so, yeah, what actions can be taken to accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. Mm. Okay, excellent. Thank you. That that's a, that's a really nice um, overview of thirty years of philosophy. There, uh, definitely. 
So looking sort of to where you are now then and, and, and looking ahead slightly, you're currently heading up ESDIT, which I think is probably one of the largest single programs globally looking at the impact of socially disruptive technologies. So you, you talked to, you know, a little bit there about some of the past um, socially disruptive technologies, I suppose, as regards the digital revolution. Um, could you say, firstly, what you take a socially disruptive technology to be? And then secondly, what the research involves? I know it's, a, it's an absolutely massive program that you're running. Yes, what we're trying to accomplish in this program is to say that a lot of technologies aren't just creating some impacts here or there. Uh, a lot of the new technologies we have in the 20th and 21st century are socially disruptive, which means that they don't transform one or two practices or one or two institutions. They are transformative of all of society. They um, change how so social institutions work. They change how uh, our culture and our cultural practices are organized. They change social structures and relations. They change the way we think. Um, they even change our, our values and beliefs. And that's what I call socially disruptive technology. Mm -hmm. So perfect example is artificial intelligence which is really disruptive in all sectors of society. It really challenges the way we do things, the way we organize things, the way we structure things everywhere. And so we're interested in these kinds of technologies and um, uh, to understand them better and to ethically assess them. But then the ethical assessment, we want to do in a way that takes into account their disruptive potential. So we don't just say, oh, yeah, there might be privacy issues here or security issues there. We say, well, let's first look at how this technology really disrupts everything. And then let's reflect on what ethical issues that brings with it. And so one of the discoveries we've made is that some of these disruptions are really disruptions of our core concepts and beliefs. Mm. So uh, including our core concepts of morality. So our thinking about good and evil, our thinking about privacy, about uh, fairness and justice, about liberty. These are all being kind of challenged and changed by disruptive technologies. Uh, maybe give an example of that as well. Uh, AI is again, a perfect foil here. So AI for the first time introduces machines that can make decisions, that can act autonomously based on intelligent processing of environmental inputs. So like a human acts. So some philosophers have argued that AI programs and intelligent robots, they're really, they're agents, they're moral agents even, if they conform to the principles of morality as we know them and you can program to do that to some extent. So if they're, they're right, then for thousands of years, human beings have been the only moral agents, and now we certainly have a new class of moral mm -hmm. agents. And how do we deal with that in society? What, what decisions can these moral agents make or should they not be making? 
how do they relate to us and our decision making and our actions um what does that mean for who's responsible for what so it really challenges our moral concepts and our moral understanding yeah i i could certainly see that if as you say you agree that they are moral agents which i yeah. personally am skeptical uh, of at the moment but oh go ahead personally also skeptical about but still you have a big responsibility gap with ai and and yeah. that's a challenge to to ethics as it stands sure so how is it how would you say it's actually changing our beliefs because i think you know you could say well yes privacy has become important or is important now but wasn't privacy always important so what are what are the changes that are going on in beliefs and values well it, it varies per technology uh, i wouldn't necessarily say that ai changes the concept of privacy a lot but um, certainly information technology has mm -hmm. we've kind of moved from a more physical understanding of privacy to a more informational understanding and nowadays, if you ask some people what they understand with the concept of privacy, they, they refer basically to the informational privacy concept, that it's all about personal information and its processing. Well, originally, uh, there's, there's bodily privacy, the privacy of the body, there's privacy of the home, there's privacy of um, private communications, which can also be offline. Um, privacy of thoughts so there's it's a much broader concept mm. but it gets skewed very much uh, in the digital age okay so it's more would you say it's just the way people are thinking about it tends to be shaped much more now by these new technologies yes yeah the so the meaning of moral concepts moral values changes Sometimes it may also make moral concepts obsolete or introduce new ones. Uh, that's also something we're looking at that has happened in the past. I mean, the very concept of privacy, or at least privacy as a right, was, of course, a uh, late um, 19th century uh, invention by uh, two American uh, legal scholars, Warren and Brandeis. So you... You, you can see that these moral concepts or any human concepts, they um, they have a history and they mm. can change over time and they can become obsolete, or, or but they also have been introduced at some point. Sure. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I, I want to move on now a little bit to, to some of your recent work, and I mentioned this in the introduction, where you've looked at operationalizing ethics or... Um, Ravi Dotan, who was uh, on the podcast uh, recently, talked about the need to talk, to discuss it in terms of embedding ethics rather than operationalizing it, uh, because from her perspective, operationalization referred to a very technical response and didn't encompass questions like culture and broader issues about values within organizations. So nomenclature to one side, I'm just interested as to what your perspective is on operationalizing ethics how how should we go about doing it yes so um most work in ethics um that scholars in ethics do is not operationalized um some some of it of good of it is quite theoretical of course when people do normative ethics or uh, meta ethics that's that's very general and theoretical but even if they do applied ethics uh, they look at ethical issues with some um, specific technology or social issue. Um, they come to some 
conclusions about what's good and bad about it, and maybe maybe some general recommendations of of um, how change might occur. But that's it's not operational in the sense that um, it doesn't give specific actors who are uh, stakeholders in this process an idea of what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. And the same goes with um, um, ethical guidelines, uh, as you have in, in various uh, areas and domains. I've recently been involved a lot with the ethics guidelines for artificial intelligence, uh, for blockchain also, um, for human enhancement. And it's it's nice to have this list of guidelines. And so it could be a, a one-page document or it could be a 20-page document with guidelines, but um the problem still is yeah you have these quite general principles and maybe some explanation of what they mean but it's not sufficient to really modify a practice of mm-hmm. a specific kind of actor whether it's a design practice or whether it's a deployment and use of new technology so you need more specific guidance uh, based on ethical principles based on ethical guidelines and how do you do that? And how does that work out for different kinds of actors, for different kinds of practices? That's, I think, a major challenge. Mm. Uh, in my own work, uh, I I start by recognizing that situation, that we need to operationalize ethics in order for it to be usable and effective uh, by different actors in society. And that's has not happened enough. There's still a gap between ethicists on the one hand and then these actors who sometimes, of course, aren't that interested in ethics, but sometimes are quite interested in making their practices more ethical, but then experiencing this gap uh, with ethics. So how can we bridge that gap? That That's the challenge. And then I'm very eclectic and pragmatic about ways in which that can be done. Uh, so... Um, well, there's different kinds of actors, there's different kinds of practices, there's there's uh, development and design of new technology, there's deployment and use of new technology, there's regulation of technology. So there are different processes that require different tools. Mm-hmm. And then also different actors in these processes that require different tools. So that's what I'm looking at. And, and sometimes you want tools that are quite formalized and systematic, basically not requiring a lot of reflection. And sometimes it's better to have tools that do require reflection. Um, So one thing I've been working at with colleagues is ethics by design for AI and uh, other uh, technological fields. Now for AI, we've developed this for the European Commission and basically in their funding program, Horizon, Horizon Europe, all AI projects are subject to ethics review and they all uh, have this recommendation to use ethics by design as developed by us as a methodology to comprehensively assess ethical issues in their projects. So that's that's exciting, I think. Mm. And um, it's, it's a quite formal methodology, well, not really formal, but it's it's... It's a methodology that goes in steps and says, well, now do this, now do that. And sometimes that requires reflection, but sometimes it doesn't require much reflection. So I think that's useful because it means that 
um, to bridge the gap between ethics and engineering. Um, you find a vocabulary that is still ethical, but also a design vocabulary. That's that's the gap that needs to be bridged. Okay. You can also do it differently. You just add uh, an ethicist to the design team, and then the ethicist has to understand what the designers are saying, and the designers have to be understand what the ethics ethicists mm -hmm. are saying. But that also means that you have to find this middle ground every time anew, and that might be difficult. And and ethics by design is supposed to be a tool that already has done that work and kind of meeting in the middle. Okay, because that, that was where I was going to go next with that question is, you know, if you're talking about taking people who don't have much of an ethics background and you're sort of giving them a list of questions and saying, okay, as you said, some of these require not very much reflection, others require quite a bit of reflection. How do you empower people to do that reflection if they're not very experienced in, in ethical deliberation? Right. So... Yeah, if, if people have no clue about ethics whatsoever it, and, and no interest, then it might be difficult to apply. Mm -hmm. So some pre-existing familiarity and interest uh, would help, but we're, we're not requiring um, sophisticated, kind of um, academically sophisticated forms of reflection. We're just saying that, okay, now you're... Um, going to collect uh, data, you're in a data collection process, and um, you have to kind of consider what kinds of categories you're using to, to put uh, personal data in and, and how you're distinguishing between various social classes, for example, or who you are including, who you're not including. And we can give you some guidelines for doing that, but we cannot really give you an exact formula. So you have to do some thinking of your own. Sure. And then when it comes to, yeah, invariably with you know, the, the, the bit from an, an academic perspective where ethics gets interesting is the trade-offs. Um, and does the ethics by design process sort of give people guidance as well as to how to deal with trade-offs or, um, or difficult decisions like that? Um, only to a limited extent, because, um, yeah, the idea about applied ethics is sometimes that it's all about trade-offs. So you have conflicting moral values. So you have security and privacy are, are in conflict, or, or fairness and, and liberty are in, in conflict. But in my opinion, those cases are actually quite rare. And what is more important is simply to recognize that um, uh, the way you make choices in a development process or a deployment process um, can support or uphold certain values or, or, or kind of harm them. So you have to be aware of how that can happen. So awareness of how uh, choices are value-laden and how some choices are good for privacy and others are bad, for example, that's the most important thing. And that's 80% of what you need, in my view. And then the other 20% is value conflicts, which are also important, uh, but also more difficult. Uh, mm -hmm. And we provide some tools for that, but it's it's not our main 
focus. Okay, thanks. Well, one thing which has come up in various discussions which I've had around particularly AI ethics because of the the massive globalization of the principles and discussion that's been going on is how at a surface level AI ethics appears to have you know a broadly set sort of seven or eight principles that that you could summarize from the EU's high-level expert group or um, the OECD's principles or, or whatever privacy transparency safety robustness or all that sort of thing but one of the challenges that has been pushed back at that has been the idea that well different societies interpret these principles quite differently or they might interpret them differently is that also something which you've come across or dealt with in um, ethics by design or is that more of a sort of instrumental approach say a, a sort of tool set which you can just put into any situation and run with no what, what we try to do in ethics by design is um go through a step of by step process of operationalization so yes if you have a principle of of fairness or principle of privacy that in and of itself can be interpreted in in a host of many ways mm. but um you have to make some additional steps in operationalization so as you operationalize the meaning becomes clearer uh, by connecting it to specific choices that you have in the design process and the same goes for deployment and use so um so you have fairness for example what what does fairness mean right what kinds of, and what in what kinds of ways can ai be unfair right it can be biased obviously it can be have an algorithmic bias but it, there can also be an unfairness in terms of uh, unequal access of uh, different parties uh, different users um, there can be an unfairness in terms of its uh, the functionality it offers that its its functionality is more aligned with the interests of some users than those of others so that's already three different ways in which fairness cashes out in design mm. and just by pointing out these three different types of of fairness that you need to adhere to that you already come closer to kind of aligning that with specific design practices so that's what we're trying to do of course um in different cultures these principles are going to be interpreted differently um there's not necessarily a problem with that um you also want your ethics to be aligned with uh, the cultural values that exist in a particular society so that there are these differences is in and of itself i think okay mm. Okay. Okay. Thanks. So we've talked a bit about a well, quite a bit about AI, and that that's understandable, particularly as you know, Chat GPT and GPT four are very much very present with us at the moment. What are some of the other technologies that you're looking at in the ESDIT research? Right. So AI is a very exciting area, and so many people are being hired right now in this area so much money is being thrown at it there every day there's another center for digital ethics or ai ethics that seems to uh, spring up um so naturally 
a lot of people are interested in AI, and you see that also in the asset program, that a lot of attention goes to AI. We're also mm. collaborating a lot with, with AI scholars and designers. But uh, this is not just a program about AI. It's it's a prime disruptive technology, but there are others. Um, take, for example, neurotechnology and how it um, may change the way we think and feel. Um, Newer technology has not come to a, the point where it's not just being, being used to kind of uh, improve motor function, for example, but also to improve mental function. And um, yeah, what is, are the potentials and what are the pitfalls uh, for that? Uh, one big area we're looking at is um, um, environmental and sustainable technologies and um, the whole energy transition and uh, climate change and uh, all the new challenges that um, this uh, new technological revolution brings. Climate change in itself is very disruptive mm -hmm. of society, but then these technologies that you need to combat climate change, they will also disrupt the economy, disrupt um, society in many ways, as we're already seeing everywhere. Uh, so we have kind of to, to fight one huge disruption of society we basically have to introduce a whole new series of disruptions in order to to mitigate so that's a very fascinating area we're looking at um, uh, all kinds of biomedical technologies um, as well we're looking at blockchain i'm currently in this um, expert group uh, for blockchain ethics we're going to uh, uh, issue the first Ethics guidelines for blockchain, mm. which is an area. Well, because AI sucks all, all all the oxygen out of the room, there's so many other areas that uh, are barely explored nowadays. So blockchain is one of them, actually. And and this we're talking about many trillions of uh, euros or dollars mm -hmm. or pounds uh, of crypto and and other assets, uh, NFTs. So that's that's something worth. Thinking, thinking about it and thinking about the ethical implications. And then currently I'm working on a book on extended reality in the metaverse. Uh, virtual reality, augmented reality are emerging technologies um, becoming incre increasingly influ influential in society. And then there's this future vision of the metaverse as this uh, shared virtual space where uh, millions, if not billions, of people will meet mm. and interact, a new way of interacting, uh, not screen-based, uh, but uh, embodied. Um, so it's a new way of interacting with information and with communicating and interacting with other people. And that might be the future of the Internet. And if so, it would have tremendous uh, moral implications that um, I'm currently exploring in a book. Excellent. I'm I'm tempted to ask you what some of those would be, but I think I probably ought to wait until the book comes out so you can develop them more carefully. But while while we've got, we've got a few minutes left, I just want to give you the floor if you want to um, if you want to add anything or say anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important. Yeah, that's a difficult one. Mm. So um, I would say that um, we talked about operationalization, so that that's a major concern. But at the same time, in the field of ethics of technology, uh, we have to also, um, and that's what we're doing in the SDIT program, Ethics of Socially Disruptive Technologies, is that we have to also think again of 
theories and approaches in our field because so much applied work is done uh, where the funder really wants us to think about the implications of technology X and Y that sometimes we don't pay enough attention about, yeah, what, how does technology, how do technological products or systems really raise ethical issues? How does that work? Mm. Um, uh, how neutral or biased is technology really? And and how does that uh, mechanism work of, of changing moral implications? Is it really our actions that do the work or is it really the technology doing the work or is that in, in um, association with each other? So there's still a lot of work to be done. Also thinking about how to deal with the future with all these emerging technologies, we're constantly thinking not only about the present and what's happening, but also about the future. So we're speculating, oh, this or that might happen in the future with uh, large language models or with this or that technology. And then we're getting worried or we're getting excited. And then we start making choices, making assessments, doing things. But how do we project those visions of the future? How do we make them reliable? And how can we draw conclusions from them? So there's a lot of theoretical and methodological work to be done in our field that we're also currently uh, addressing in the ESDIT uh, program. Excellent. Well, Philip, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I think it's been very insightful and hopefully helpful to people to hear that through. And uh, hopefully we will see you again in the not too distant future. Thank you very much, Kevin. Glad to, uh, to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Getting Technology Right, Ethics and Technology podcast with Dr. Kevin Magnish, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations and our audience, visit itspmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.